What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists. Like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Kathy is frazzled as she's stuck in traffic. She thinks to herself, I'm too busy to be going out for lunch. Too busy to chit-chat. Too busy to deal with any food that isn't just handed to me through a drive through window. Kathy is still frazzled as she walks into a cafe. I have a million things to do at work. A billion things to do at home. A zillion things to do for the holidays. I'm too busy for lunch. Too busy. Too busy. Kathy then gets to a cafe and sits at a table with her friend, looking stressed. Hi, Kathy. What's new? Nothing. But an extremely busy nothing. And if that's not a thesis statement for the life of the Kathy character, I don't know what is. Hi, everybody, and welcome to ACCast. I'm your host, Jamie Loftus, and in our last episode today, we're going to peek our little heads out of the fourth ring of the Kathy Inferno and take a look at what we've learned from both the character and the creator. The comic, by creator Kathy Geiswhite's own admission, is about four things. Love, work, food, and mom, 
And for mom, I'll just sub in relationships to women in general, as that's kind of an overarching theme as well. And after spending almost six months with Kathy's work, her generation, her humor, and the many different reasons this character was so loved and hated, the clearer it is to me that Kathy comics are a masterful examination of effort and failure. And I don't mean that in a negative way at all, because when it comes to talking about failure, Kathy is a huge success. I don't think that the idea of failure, especially failure over time, is discussed often enough in popular media. And when it is discussed, it tends to be a little melodramatic or tragic or overly goofy. Failure is relegated to overlong art movies or HBO comedies. Failures that are examined in deep and empathetic detail are usually the failures of men, and they often elicit some kind of sympathetic response, even when the characters aren't particularly likable. This falls under the umbrella of the male anti-hero that has been so popular in media over the past 20 years. But when those same qualities, those same failures, those same lapses of judgment are applied to anyone but a man, and usually a white man at that, people often turn on them. And in the funny pages where Kathy lived, when characters fail, they would ordinarily succeed in some way by the end of the strip, or they're framed as a sympathetic hero. Think how Dilbert became this iconic incel whose hatred of his office job made him a hero to Gen X cubicle heads. Fuck. Think about how Charlie Brown's existential dread turned into not just a billion dollar industry, but one of the most popular characters to root for in spite of their failures of all time. The Kathy character upends that trend in almost every way. Not only was she actively rooted against by many people in a way that certainly never followed Charlie Brown, by the end of many of Kathy Geiswhite's comic strips, her character was failing harder than when the strip began. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. This is from the late 90s, and Irving is about to lay Kathy off from her job of over 20 years. I couldn't get you laid off, Kathy. I still have a job? Oh, thank you, Irving. Thank you. But I couldn't exactly keep you here either. Excuse me? The company isn't letting you go, but it also isn't making a full commitment to you. Am I employed or not? You won't be at this office but you will be working someplace near and dear to your heart. Ack! I'm being transferred to Vagueville! And you may remember that in this storyline, Kathy eventually does lose her job, thanks to the man who will one day be her husband. Ugh. And she then has to start her own consulting business from home to support herself before being hired back a year later. For 34 years, Kathy failed almost every single day, in the daily sense, she fails knowingly. She looks in a mirror and doesn't like what she sees. She steps on a scale and doesn't like what she sees. She walks into a date and she doesn't like who she sees or how they see her. And then there are these longer term failures that she doesn't see because she couldn't possibly see them coming. No one wants to think that the issues they have with self-image in 1976 are just different versions of the same problems that they'll have in 2010. That's like the definition of a bad hang. But very often that's true. And while it may contradict itself in a fictional character, it happens very often in real life. Kathy is full of contradictions. She fucks, but she still ends up with Irving. 
She tries every avenue she can, often going into debt to do so, to love herself, but she's still insecure at the close of every single comic. She dresses for the job she wants, but she never gets that job. And even when she succeeds at what she thought she was supposed to want, the marriage, the career, and in the final strip of the series, the pregnancy, it's unclear to people who have been there the whole time whether she's achieved what she was told she wanted or what she actually wanted for her life. But unlike these complicated characters who struggle with personal relationships and the way they view themselves, the famous failure character canon, Kathy was rarely met with sympathy. If you've been listening to this show, you're aware that the characters' failures were only fuel for further antagonism. Here's an excerpt from the comic journal's Juliet Kahn to this point from 2018. Kathy was and is a liability. She reveals us as victimized. She reveals us as creatures that do not exist for men. She reveals our effort. Sometimes we are sad because we ate with a heedlessness we are not allowed. Sometimes we are angry because our bosses kept cornering us after hours. And so we must repudiate her. There has always been a problem of continuity in feminism, a tendency stoked by the patriarchy we swim in to slash and burn our past. How often do I hear of people who describe themselves as feminists recall bra burning that never happened, positively or negatively? How often do we reinvent the wheel because whoever did it the first time has faded into some boring old lady who we must not become, who we surely will avoid becoming if we just ignore her as hard as we can? Kathy, whatever her origins, has become that woman. And beyond everything I have just argued, it comes down to that. Kathy is old, and old women are expendable, and even we feminists are in a hurry to be rid of them. And I love how Juliet Kahn emphasizes effort here, because the only thing that is a bigger candidate for being torn to shit by the general public than failure is failure that has clear, enormous effort attached to it. Think of how bad American Idol auditions become huge. Think of how bad movies that are sincere are really fun to watch. It's that idea of schadenfreude. I think I said that right. In Kathy's case, it's human nature with a seasoning of misogyny to find annoyance or cruel pleasure in watching her fail. Traditionally, and certainly in Kathy's time, beauty and femininity are supposed to look effortless. We're trained to see effortlessness as sexy, as ideal. Think of traditionally feminine sports like figure skating and ballet. In her day, Kathy's clear effort was a source of ridicule, but to her, effort meant hope and discipline. She believes that she can be the person that her culture is telling her to be, and so she makes an effort by disciplining her body, spending her money on trends, trying and trying again when the latest rigged fad fails. And it was never a secret that the Kathy Strip, for all of its avoidances of specific cultural events, was political simply by existing. Kathy said this to Hogan's Magazine in 2010 as the comic was ending. I feel like a lot of the time, my strip made sort of political comments about the state of women, their expectations, the state of women in the office, being harassed, being held back being utterly confused by the mixed messages we get from everything from what size to be, how to feel about ourselves, how to look. To me, that's all sort of political. A lot of what I wrote about was the woman's place in the world and the pressure we're under to be a certain way, to think certain things, 
to have or not have certain opportunities. I spoke about this with Kathy Geiswhite recently, right as she was in the middle of digging through her own archives to assemble the 45th anniversary collection of her comic strip. Here we are talking specifically about the two times the strip touched on Kathy's harassment in the workplace. First, when Mr. Pinkley harassed her in the 80s, then again, when the Product Testing Incorporated offices went into sensitivity training in the 90s. I can't exactly remember when I did those strips, but there was a lot of new conversation around the Anita Hill hearings. And yes. if if I did those strips at that time, it seems like probably I did. You did, but yeah. I, frankly, I couldn't remember if I did. So that was, if I did, oh well, that would be appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> that yes, this was a conversation that was starting to be had for the first time ever in my universe. So when I did that series, I had a lot of support from, I got a lot of mail, you know, appreciating the fact that I had done the series. And then I got a lot of mail, not appreciating the fact that I didn't end it in any triumphant (laughs) way. You know, the storyline just kind of stopped, but obviously it wasn't comfortable. I mean, if I had done that storyline in in the later years of the strip, it would have been, it would have had a much longer and much more, um, eloquent, shall I say, ending to the story. But that just kind of, uh, the storyline just kind of went away. But at least the subject was brought up in the strip. And it was definitely something that a lot of women were experiencing. And then after that period, then a lot of offices were forced to go into sensitivity training for (laughs) for the male workers and, uh, you know, equality training. I can't exactly, enlightenment training for everybody. All the offices were doing that at a time where men were having to learn not to, you know, pat their peers on the butt and (laughs) look down their blouses and, you know, insist they wear shorter skirts, Googling them in meetings. All of that was... That was perfectly, um, you know, kind of just what happened before. It was uh, men were needing to learn that that was not okay. To illustrate Guys White's point, here's a brief history of the Kathy character's career. She began in the 70s as a door-to-door saleswoman for Product Testing Incorporated, was then promoted into low-level management in their office, was forcibly kissed by her boss, and nothing happened to discipline him. She stayed at that job for 20 years, while occasionally winning a small salary increase but never pay equity. She gets laid off by Irving and replaced by a 22-year-old when the dot-com bubble bursts in the 90s, then brought back for a couple more years, right in time for the 2008 recession to hit the company. She isn't passionate about her work, but she's determined to succeed at it and be the well-rounded woman that it's her goal to be. And I don't want to imply that the enormous effort that goes into Kathy's day-to-day doesn't occasionally result in success and catharsis. Kathy's brief victories proved very popular among fans of the strip, but in the long term, never really led her anywhere else, even when Kathy is blisteringly aware of how unfairly she is being treated, even when she gets up the courage to say so and not just 
think it, or tell it to her friend. It rarely, if ever, results in things actually changing. More often than not, the issue isn't that the person that she's complaining to doesn't know the problem is happening, it's that they have nothing to gain by fixing it. And Kathy's effort and anger in the face of people like this often make her look unreasonable, whiny, fruitless, hysterical. Here she is making her case for the expenses related to being a working woman in the early 90s. To look office acceptable, a man needs a $200 suit, $60 shoes, a $30 shirt, $5 of underwear, and a $10 haircut. To look office acceptable, a woman needs a $200 suit, $80 shoes, a $90 blouse, $35 of lingerie, a $45 haircut, $5 pantyhose, $46 of makeup, a $10 manicure, $200 of jewelry, and a $30 purse containing $9 of emergency supplies to maintain her professional look throughout the day. Thus, on behalf of all women, I demand a year-end refund for each of us, plus $10 per hour for all the extra shopping time required. It all evens out with the extra aspirin men have to buy. Medicine is in a different category. Shall I begin with our therapy bills? Kathy's advocacy for herself didn't come naturally. As we're repeatedly reminded by the comic, the concept of Kathy seeing herself as a career woman instead of an aspiring wife and mother gave Kathy's mother extreme pause. The character who pushes her towards her career was her friend Andrea, a second wave feminist whose effort and failure were treated very differently in the comic from Kathy's. It was instead received as, and occasionally framed as, the abrasive killjoy attitude that people who advocate for themselves are often labeled as. Guys White and I discussed Andrea's origins. How did you uh, conceive of the Andrea character I just think I was I was pulling from more uh, clear feminists that I saw on TV and read about, and also truthfully in in the part of myself that was in agreement with that. You know, there's right. there there's I always I think that there was always a part of myself that you know believed completely was also the voice of Andrea, but there was the other part that <laughs> that had my name on it that was the voice <laughs> that was the voice of Kathy so but you know there I mean I read Ms. Magazine I I mm-hmm. understood I I watched I watched the strong women and was proud of that and wanted to be part of that and but um it was just so much more complicated than any woman today any young woman today can possibly comprehend it was it's not that it was complicated for everybody because of course it wasn't but for a big chunk of us you know it was complicated we were navigating relationships in a completely different way than mm-hmm. than our mothers had and that certainly that our grandmothers had you know there were all the <laughs> All those books came out sort of during my dating years about understanding the male brain and and you know men are from Mars and women are from no women are men are from Mars women are from Venus right. and there was that whole culture of books about trying to understand the male brain and trying to figure that out and <laughs> there was a generation of women like me who studied those like like the Bible <laughs> you know. <laughs> And prayed to God that we would have some clue for how to deal with these losers who were, you know, not wanting to go out with us 
if we, you know, if they imagine like that we made more money than they did, that was that, that relationship over, you know, so <laughs> God. there was, yeah, I know, That's, like I said, it's, it's like you can't, you could not comprehend it. So Kathy Geiswhite carefully constructed Andrea to be the feminist motor of the series, especially during the early years of this trip where Kathy was still wrapping her head around the wave of middle-class boomer women making a hard commitment to their careers over motherhood and domesticity in their 20s and 30s. But in the late 80s, Andrea's life also created contradictions within her character. Once Kathy was firmly in the girl boss lifestyle in the Reagan administration with Andrea, Andrea flipped the switch again and decided that she wanted marriage, children, and her career. But as the central plot of many TV shows I watch when I get a cold go, women having it all is not something that's made simple or sometimes even possible to do. And so while Andrea is successful in getting married and having her children, she is punished by being forced back to the bottom of the corporate ladder. Andrea was furious as this happened, and she told Kathy this when they became co-workers. I was earning 60000 a year when I quit working full-time to be a mother. And now, all I'm worth is six fifty an hour temp job? Do people really think I'm not serious about my career just because I have children? That I'm incapable of the kind of focus that got me to the top before? It's an outrage. I intend to fight. But for now, there's work to do. Where shall I get started on those? In the last panel, Kathy peers over at Andrea's desk, which is covered in framed photos of her kids. There's an inch of space between Gus's first bath photo and Zenith's birthday album. This is my desk? You're kidding. I thought it was an end table. The Andrea character, as we've discussed in past episodes, made a strong effort to be the woman that second wave feminism told her she could be. Whether she realized this or not, these opportunities were promised to upwardly mobile white women in particular. At different points in the comic, Andrea fought for pay equity, for solidarity among her friends and co-workers, for political candidates that she believed in, for less aggressively gendered advertising and children's toys and holiday mascots. She literally dressed up as Santa one year. She taught her children to demand to dismantle these systems, for her friends to refuse men who didn't treat them well. Just like the Kathy character advocated for herself to her accountant, these strips can be really cathartic to read, but in terms of the direction of Andrea's life, they kind of go nowhere. Andrea is never paid equally, and she's discriminated against for taking maternity leave. She ends up losing her job and has to rebuild her career at Kathy's workplace. Her kids, Zenith and Gus, do end up succumbing to gendered marketing. Her daughter Zenith gets married and has a child right out of college. Her political candidates lose. And Andrea's character, particularly as she gets older, struggles to accept that her expectations for her children and herself didn't bear out the way that she wanted them to. But by the end of the strip, she has accepted Zenith and she's really excited to be a grandmother. In some ways, it's lovely, but it's also clear that there have been a lot of blockades put in front of her and she's just had to accept them. And like Andrea's initial reaction to her daughter's life choices, Kathy sometimes struggles to accept women who make different life choices than herself as well, even when her own life choices were making her completely miserable. Which, I mean, has self-loathing ever stopped you from judging others? Because it certainly 
hasn't stopped me. I hate myself and your choices are bad. Two things can be true. But Guys White uses this friction to illustrate how women of this time chose to live differently. Here's a strip where Kathy is visiting her friend who is a stay-at-home mother in the 70s. Isn't this great, Barb? You're at home with the baby all day. I'm at the office with my job all day. But we can still talk like we used to. We're still just the same. Yeah, deep down, we're just two tired women. The two sit in silence in front of their coffees, clearly kind of annoyed with the other. In the last panel, they both explode into anxiety and say in unison, What are, are you, you so, so tired, tired for? for? You, you didn't, didn't do, do anything, anything today. today. But keep in mind, this is a very early strip. And over time, Kathy manages to overcome some of her prejudgments about women's life choices by actually speaking with them. We see her talk to younger women. We see her talk to stay-at-home mothers. We see her talk to Charlene, who's of a lower socioeconomic class. And it bears repeating that there is little to no representation of non-white or non-straight characters. But to say that Kathy is completely stuck in her ways and how she views the world and other people is kind of disingenuine. By the comic's last decade, Kathy is actively empathizing with the 22-year-old who took her job. Andrea's real success is her mindset. Unlike Kathy, we do not see her question her code of ethics and values throughout the strip. She never wavers. Sometimes her conviction is the punchline, but more often than not, it's a tool that Kathy Geiswhite uses to channel her own frustrations on how women were treated or marketed to or told to look through the years. And sometimes between Kathy and Andrea, we see Kathy push back on Andrea's conviction. Here's a strip I really love. Kathy, Irving, and Andrea all sit watching a TV ad. Irving is blissfully unaware as Kathy and Andrea look annoyed. The ad exclaims, For the new breed of woman, practical yet sensual, dignified yet wild, cool yet warm, businesslike yet romantic, demure yet passionate. Look at that, Andrea. There's one of those new car commercials that caters to the new working woman. The three of them continue to watch commercials. Ha! Look at this one, Kathy. Here's an insurance company practically begging for the new working woman's business. Here we go. Here's my favorite. The airline wrote a whole new song to woo the new working woman. Kathy and Andrea stand up from the couch and yell in unison. How are we supposed, supposed to, buy to buy that, that stuff, stuff if we, we can't, can't get, get jobs, jobs that, that pay, pay any money? money? In the final panel, Irving is in the kitchen, stewing as he opens another beer. He says, I hate watching television with women. And yes, let's take a last look at Irving, who no amount of analysis and empathy could make me like. Which, actually, I need to share this with you. A listener of this podcast reached out to me to tell me that Irving was a favorite comic strip character of Ted Bundy. What else do you need to know? Kathy Geiswhite has gone back and forth on her feelings about Irving over the years, even though he eventually becomes Kathy's spouse and the father of her spawn. 
Spawn of Kathy. I would watch that movie. There were times during her strip's run where Guys White got sick of Irving and he would disappear from the newspaper for years. There were times where Guys White swore that her heroine would never get married. But in the early 2000s, after she had been married for several years herself, she wrote Irving a semi-redemption arc where he at least acknowledged some of his more toxic qualities to Kathy, even if he didn't actually resolve them. Let's bear that out. Ted Bundy can be like, it's really toxic that I'm a serial killer, but if he doesn't stop murdering people, it's like, well, this is kind of lip service, you know? Anyways, Kathy Geiswhite spoke with me about how she developed the character of Irving over the years and the personal experiences and boomer man commentary that she brought to him. <laughs> well, sadly, he was like exactly who I was dating at the time, which would have been obvious to every single person who knew me. <laughs> and except for me, because I thought I had disguised everything about him and about <laughs> how we related to each other. So there's that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Did uh, he did he realize? I don't think that any man I ever wrote about thought that that was him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think the men I chose to uh, date and then write about were pretty much always oblivious mm -hmm. about how they might appear, you know, in the strip. They just were oblivious about how they were. So, um, so that was the that was what what began, and um, you know, and that that relationship was uh, when I first started the strip. That relationship was all about waiting for him to call, and then him not calling, and then I mean, as as my memory is that the first. <laughs> long chunk of the comic strip and Irving was all about this endless, um, you know, lusting after the man who was not there. So that's exactly <laughs> my life at that time. And for a great, and for a lot of the time I dated, I was always just, um, you know, obsessed with somebody who wasn't interested in me. So bad for life, but great for comic strip, you know, because, <laughs> um, yeah, because I kept repeating the exact same relationship with, with different people, but I named all of them Irving. You know, and then, I mean, he evolved in time a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, evolved over time a bit. And, um, I mean, I still can't, like, believe that she married him, but there we are. She, she did. But at the time, I convinced myself that they had worked out, you know, a much better relationship and a much better way of communicating with each other. But yeah, it began and it began a just as pitiful longing for somebody to call. Once again, Jamie, I have to remind you, when I was when I was your age and was writing the comic strip, mm -hmm. there was the answering machines hadn't even been invented. The men certainly were wrestling with all the same problems from the man's point of view. I mean, which frankly I didn't care about because <laughs> I was spent we had our own problems yeah. and for all the billion hours I spent studying the books about how to understand men you know I I don't believe any man ever read books on you know what, how to you know how to understand the female brain it didn't seem to me that that was happening they were just trying to figure out how to uh, behave well enough <laughs> that 
they could be in a relationship because you know men wanted men wanted to love too you know men have always wanted to be with somebody and it got very tricky it's not until much later in the strip that we begin to learn what lies beneath irving's external abrasiveness and judgy tendencies He admits that he's insecure about his body too sometimes, that he feels threatened when Kathy's career or income eclipses his own. He's afraid of his body aging or his peers not considering him to be masculine enough. Even when he's going out to a department store and spending thousands of dollars on a new cringy look, Irving's character is aware how his effort could seem embarrassing, to the point where, at some times, he'd rather not make an effort with Kathy at all than try and potentially embarrass himself. As the strip goes on, he becomes more self-aware and tries harder, but I would be lying if I said that this strip from the early 2000s where Irving is appealing to Kathy doesn't have frothing raw Bundy energy for me. When we dated before, it was all about me, my needs, my agenda. I was such an egomaniac, such a grandiose self-centered prince, but now I'm humble humble and vulnerable, the most vulnerable man you'll ever meet. I want another chance with you, Kathy. Kathy says, You've had 10,000 chances with me, Irving! Run, Kathy, run! Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. 
If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. As you know by now, Kathy and Irving end up together, but her marrying him comes after decades of Kathy making an effort to convince herself that her body and her life is worthy of real love. This isn't entirely Irving's fault. For all of his negative qualities, I never found an example of Irving commenting on Kathy's body, and in fact he would actively encourage her to be happy with herself as she is, but I do believe that Kathy's failure to find herself worthy of love and her eventual marriage to Irving are connected. And no, I don't want to harp on this anymore, so let's play a little send-off to Irving with some strips I found of him at his absolute worst. Play the music. I hated being labeled an insensitive bumbler when I didn't do something I didn't know I was supposed to do. What is it now? Feelings? Anxieties? Commitment? Dishware? Shows? Children? Romance? What? Aging boomer this, aging boomer that. I am sick of hearing about aging baby boomers. Goodbye, Irving. A psychic weight has lifted from me. And now that we have freed ourselves from Irving, I do want to emphasize one last time with evidence that the Kathy character fucked. And the generalization that Kathy was quote-unquote desperate is certainly tied to her relationship with Irving. There are many moments where her behavior toward Irving skews on the needy and neurotic. But outside of that relationship, Kathy wasn't desperate or clueless about the way men treated her. And there are numerous examples of Kathy telling either us, her audience, or sometimes the man she's going on a date with exactly how she feels about them. She fucks. Here are some of my favorite examples. Kathy's standing in the foyer of her house with some dorky doctor named Nathan. I don't want to go out with you anymore, Nathan. I have no interest in a man who's given up his whole life for the internet. Nor do I care to help you try to dredge up the jewel of a human that may still be buried in your brain under 40,000 email addresses. In this one, Kathy sits at a bar with a mustachioed creep named John who's just approached her. Hi, sweetie. Can I buy you a drink? No, thanks. Hey, come on. This is the 20th century, baby. You gotta loosen up. You gotta live. You gotta do whatever makes you feel good. In the final panel, Kathy smirks as she dumps her glass of water on his head. John shot his shot, and he fucked with the wrong girl. Here's another. It's a dinner date with a guy named Bradley in the 80s. In this one, Bradley is talking. Kathy is thinking. Yak, yak. My beamer, my boat. Yak, yak. The second this blind date is over, I'm going to murder Charlene. Yak, yak, my jacuzzi, my club. Yak, yak, my masseuse. I'll go to her home and strangle her scrawny neck for fixing me up with this geek. My condo. Yak, yak, my broker. Yak, yak. 
Kathy's still thinking, but she's furious. I'll go to prison. So what? <laughs> I'll spend the rest of my life rotting behind bars, but I'll have my revenge. Bradley cluelessly blathers on in the last panel, completely unaware that Kathy is plotting to murder her best friend. So what are your plans for the future, Kathy? And I saved the best for last. Here's Kathy rejecting her coworker, Ted. Do you want to get together sometime, Kathy? No, Ted. Actually, no, I don't. While you may be asking about the most casual of dates, I can only suspect you have deeper interests, and it's my responsibility to tell you I do not share them. Experience has taught me that even one day with a man I'm not attracted to is a mistake. I'm not interested in romance with you, Ted. Not now, not ever. In the last panel, Ted is gone, and Kathy looks nervous, thinking to herself at her desk. The only men I really communicate with are the ones I'll never speak to again. So to say that Kathy is not a desirable entity, come on. This is a woman who two of her own secretaries fell in love with her and a buff personal trainer 10 years her junior fell madly in love with her and proposed. So while Kathy generally doubts her own desirability, she desires and is desired, which could be said of virtually no single woman over 35 in the funny pages. Or, while we're at it, in the vast majority of pop culture while Kathy was in print. But Guys White still finds room for nuance here. Because yes, her character is desired, but that doesn't mean that she isn't still insecure and self-conscious. The Kathy character was never really encouraged to love herself by her culture because accepting yourself generally means spending less money. I firmly believe that the reason that all of these elements come together so cleanly, especially on the topic of body and self-image, is because of Kathy Geiswhite's awareness of not just her own feelings, but the feelings of the people in her generation. By her own admission, she's a little less clear on the subsequent generations, but that wasn't what the Kathy comic was. It was an examination of the way that the average American boomer was encouraged to liberate herself one decade, then pivot to hyperconsumption and self-absorption the next. It illustrated how this model was completely unsustainable and disorienting, and the Kathy character's whiplash when it came to the constant changing in diet and fashion reflected that. Guys White spoke with me about her inspiration, about where she pulled from for food storylines, and how they were received. Well, the, I think the approach to the subject matter only changed because the sensibility of the world changed. When I started the strip, nobody was talking about embracing your lovely feminine form, whatever shape or size you are, which, you know, <laughs> changed a lot Yeah. in the last years, even though... I think that that, that that theme just kind of evolved as, as, as the food consciousness evolved and the frustrations of it evolved. Mm -hmm. It was just with like an ongoing battle that I know that a lot of women had mm -hmm. with their self-image. A lot of it had to do with how much they weighed in the morning or how they feel about themselves in the morning mm -hmm. or what they could fit into to go out. And no matter how supportive the universe was of how you know, how they shouldn't feel bad about their weight, then, uh, you know, the, the reality of a woman's looking in a mirror and not being happy with herself is, is hard. 
it's hard for that. It's hard for that to be changed by the power of like a magazine article that says you have to feel good about yourself. So, uh, I mean, there were a billion diets over the years. There still are, you know, that promise all kinds of things. It's hard to not be seduced by those. It's hard for women to not. It's hard for women to pick up any magazine where the cover says, you know, we're all beautiful the way we are, and then inside has twenty articles on how to, you know, lose twenty pounds by. By Memorial Day weekend, and yeah. it's so complicated right now mm-hmm. to be a woman and to know how good you're supposed to feel about yourself, and yet to, you know, kind of um, experience, the, you know, the peer pressure and the world pressure to look and be a certain way. Who is Kathy changing or like trying to change her body for? Ultimately, do you think? Well, there's a good question. I <laughs> uh, don't know. Seems, I don't know. I mean, it seems, I assume in the beginning of the strip, you would think that Kathy was changing it to be more lovable. Mm-hmm. And then toward the end of the strip, I would think that Kathy just wanted to not, you know, be, to be happier with how she looked at herself in the mirror. I would think mm-hmm. it was not so much about being loved by somebody else. It was more about, not being disgusted (laughs) by herself (laughs) you know just what you said what you just said that um that self-consciousness is a very lonely place it was lonely when i was young and it's i think it's a lot lonelier it's even lonelier now now that everybody is so self-expressed and so empowered to be who they are it seems like it's less even even lately i saw on instagram that was kind of a new wave of kind of being vulnerable and the power of being vulnerable and but then you know in my time i would have looked at those and gone well they're not being vulnerable in the way i feel vulnerable you know there still is a lonely there still is a great loneliness to that and i think right now because it's i think less less okay to admit that you um, don't, you know, maybe feel good about yourself or you're unsure about this or you feel inadequate or you feel insecure. So it's okay to admit it out loud. So it's kind of even with all this, look at this universe of women supporting other women. It's, it's still, you know, it's still like at the end of the day, it's still, still you looking in the mirror and going, you know, how, you know, <sighs> Who am I and what did I do today? And, you know, do I measure up and did I blow it? Self-consciousness is a very lonely place. Could very well be the subtitle for this comic strip. And I think it's particularly interesting how Kathy Geiswhite's body was also constantly commented on whenever she would do an interview, whether she was actually appearing on screen or not. I recently spoke with Drew Zondanella Stannard, a researcher who worked on Marissa Metzer's book, This Is Big, a history of Weight Watchers and spot-on criticism of how predatory diet culture continues to mutate and evolve. And we spoke about where the Kathy comics fell on this spectrum. Here's a little bit of our conversation. 
it moves forward in time and you can see there's a very specific line that's, you know, followed from, you know, someone's, you know, silent generation mom being on like a cigarette diet and, you know, mm-hmm. Lord knows when to like the Weight Watchers at Work program, which is what, you know, Kathy was licensed for. <laughs> and, right. and it was so interesting, like to learn more about that. I mean, obviously like, the history of Weight Watchers is like a whole thing. When you talk about it and you start going down that path, unraveling that, I mean, we all are caught up in what we're told about our bodies our entire lives. We're told that, you know, it's a it's a lifestyle and not a diet. And I think, you know, it makes you feel like you're going crazy at a certain point because yeah. you know, like, you know that there's a separation there and like it doesn't necessarily make sense. So Kathy is interviewed in this Weight Watchers magazine, um, and she says a couple things that I think were, like, really interesting, um, because I do feel a disconnect there, right? She said, Weight Watchers gave me a foundation for living in a world filled with food, and talks about, you know, how she's really proud of Weight Watchers and the work that they do. And she did a couple um, specific kind of motivational posters and cartoons for Weight Watchers. Mm-hmm. And one of them, you know, is Kathy at work. It was the Weight Watchers at work program. Right. And I can't, by the way, think of anything like more humiliating than being weighed in front of my coworkers. I know. Like, uh, like so strange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like Kathy in this cartoon is saying, I will not think about being on a diet. I am not on a diet. I'm on a new food program for life. So when you're framing it that way, and like when we think about, you know, Oprah's partnership with WW, it's like, well, she's talking about a lifestyle change. And it's never a life. (laughs) It's not a lifestyle. I mean, like you can't count points for the rest of your existence. Right. Right. And and it, it doesn't quite make sense but I try like in in my heart of hearts I'm always trying to give Kathy and you know the real Kathy (laughs) like you know the the I don't know some space in my heart to understand that like they're on their own journey what have the changes been in how we're trained to see their bodies a portion of my professional life is brand strategy and specifically like with background in food um and marketing and it's a repackaging, you know, and it's not as simple as that, obviously, because I think, you know, especially in the last few years, like that attitude has changed more than it has in a very long time. Um, but when you look at the way that people talk about um, dieting in like the older books that I have, when you talk, when they talk about aging, when they talk about, you know, any kind of like health and wellness beauty situation, mm-hmm. um, it, you can see how that language has changed over time, but it's still selling the same thing. Right. Um, and, you know, I think in this interview, I keep going back to Weight Watchers Magazine thing because it was so interesting for me to actually hear Kathy speak about herself. And, you know, she talks about weight being central to every woman's existence. Um, and that's very true. Like that's a truth that hasn't changed. Um, and the way that we talk about it has changed a bit. Um, but when we're talking about, you know, even now, like when we're talking about, um, wellness culture and self-care culture, it's diet culture. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's been repackaged and resold to us. Like, you know, we're not like licking foil yogurt and 
lids anymore and you know buying I I hope not (laughs) I know Um, you know like buying all kinds of weird like we've had like diet foods like you know microwaving sadly in cuisines or whatever but like maybe some people are and good for them that's their choice right it's their body but um you know we're talking about wellness in a different way um but it's very much the same as you know the older books I have on you know beauty and it's it's an it's an awkward thing to realize that too right because we like to think we like to go back and look at our former selves or go back to like older generations and say like ha 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 you know they were so dumb then like I can't believe that you know you would suggest that someone would smoke a cigarette instead of you know having breakfast (laughs) whatever but then you look at things like and and I'm not critical of anyone that makes these choices but you look at things like intermittent fasting right and that's just a choice not to eat at certain times of your day and we've been telling people to do that for a long time (laughs) and yeah it's just being resold to us in a different way but that's why I think you know that research is so important too because it's important to understand how we've talked about our bodies for however many years and how food is tied to that and how we treat food um because if you don't have you know if you don't have a perspective on that, um, it's hard to confront anything, you know, that you're going through on your own or, or look critically at, you know, the media, like the world around you. Please check out Drew Zondanella Standard's work. It is incredible. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. 
If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. I was also lucky to speak to Rachel Syme, a New Yorker writer who wrote one of the best pieces on Kathy Geiswhite ever. It's a 2019 piece from New York Magazine called The Feminist Paradox of Kathy Geiswhite and was released during the press cycle for Geiswhite's memoir, 50 Things That Aren't My Fault. For the interview, Rachel Syme went to Geiswhite's Los Angeles home. The two of them played a game of chicken on whether either of them would eat any of the cookies on the table. Neither did. And Syme echoes Juliet Kahn's wish to reconsider the bad faith criticism made about Geiswhite's work back in the day. I got to catch up with Rachel recently and ask her where Kathy Comics fall in our understanding of the relationship between Kathy, the American middle class, and failure. Here's our conversation. One of the things that I think is a real disservice to her, which I know you've gotten into, is this idea that like this external creation that she made for the comic, this satire, this avatar upon which she could project all her anxieties Mm -hmm. became a stand-in for her, right? Right. And her totality. And that's her creation. Like, Kathy is her little impish avatar that she made for so she could launder all these issues and, like, figure them out and work through them, as opposed to it being like, this is my autobiography. I don't know. I, yeah. I think that that distinction is, was really stark to me when I met her, because she's so funny and she's so charming, and you get the sense of why she was, like, one of Johnny Carson's favorite guests, right? And people right. always forget that part of Kathy's life where she was, you know, had a public life. She was very charming and full of charisma and, and all this stuff versus like everyone wants to think she's like sitting at home in sweatpants, like deciding whether or not she should eat chocolate. Right. That's, yeah. That's not an accurate representation of her. At the same time, she was never Phyllis Diller. She was never out there like yucking it up and giving it back to the boys. I think that she had a very sort of interesting place that her comedy was coming from, which was like, it was a comedy of insecurity, anxiety, and questions about being a woman. And especially for her time, those questions, which are just so clearly addressed in today's comedy, I mean, could be even more, but (laughs) is so, you know, is like much more to the forefront. I mean, at that time, I think it was pretty radical and people didn't really know what to do with it. For Kathy, at least, it felt like her work was interpreted so literally by people as and in a way that you would never assume that any other comic would be interpreted so literally and so one to one. And it almost like I mean, the closest thing I can think of maybe is like Larry David or something where he's made this like creation out of his anxiety. And then everyone's like, that must be Larry David. I I've never met Larry. I have no idea what he's really like, but I think maybe there's that amount of projection and maybe Mm -hmm. the closest thing I'm thinking of, you know, certainly Kathy has changed in my estimation so many times, you know, flip-flopped and, oh, I'm angry with it and I'm wrestling with it. And then I'm so, you know, astonished by what she was able to do, especially being, you know, one of the only women cartoonists to ever get a nationally syndicated cartoon Mm -hmm. and completely made it in this man's world for what that's worth. Yeah. And also she was a mogul and an entrepreneur and she was incredibly successful 
and she made a lot of women feel seen. I mean, at the end of the day, that was what was so astonishing to me. I mean, she has an entire room of fan mail, right? Yeah. She has yeah. a whole she has letters from women saying, This is me. You make me laugh. I look forward to your strip every time I open the paper. This is me. Right? Right. And there's you can't take that away from her at all. Intergenerationally, a lot of people don't have enough context or appreciation for how hard it was for them, for what they went through, for everything Kathy did to even get her own comic strip, how she had to hide in the bathroom of her ad agency. And the woman in the hierarchy there, and she, you know, didn't want anyone to know she was doing this sort of strip about not being able to get a boyfriend on the side, but she thought men would judge her, and she's crying in the bathroom stall, and all of these things that, like, you know, she broke a lot of ground. She made a lot of things happen. She was the first person to do a lot of things. So we need to appreciate that. I think the conversation I had with her was one of the more enlightening, like intergenerational conversations I've had. And she's so funny, you know. If you don't already follow Rachel Symes' work, I strongly encourage you to do so. She currently works for The New Yorker, really anything in her catalog. And I buried the lead a bit there because Rachel's experience going to Kathy's house closely mirrored one that I had not too long ago. Shortly before this show began to air, Kathy Geiswhite invited me to her house. It's a really cool house. It's got two floors and this huge yard in Los Angeles. Definitely a house that's out of reach for the average person, but not so big that it feels gauche or like the person who lives there thinks that they're better than you. It's the kind of house that you would get if you were doing well for yourself during the Clinton administration, I guess. And that's where I meet Kathy Geiswhite in person for the first time. And she was exactly the person I was hoping she would be. Apologizing for her dog barking from another room, offering my boyfriend and I water, and very graciously accepting the ugly grocery store flowers I brought that I could have sworn were tasteful and chic when I got them. But I realized about two blocks away from her house that they were ugly and desperate and would ruin everyone's lives who saw them. So we stood in her foyer for a while and talked, but it felt awkward. We sat outside for a while, but it was too hot. And I was just really, really nervous to meet her after spending this much time with her work and felt the most embarrassing elements of my own personality come out, which I think is anxiety from a sincere feeling. I can't tell what she thinks about me because I don't naturally have the personality that matches who I am when I'm preparing like I am for you right now. Like, I am six feet tall, but people regularly describe me as 5'8", which I think speaks to the energy I bring to a room. And Kathy isn't the person from the Johnny Carson interviews either. She's so kind and funny and accommodating during our visit. But that polish that comes with a well-curated late-night appearance isn't there in real life, of course. So instead of choosing a third location to sit, she decides to show us around. And in my opinion, there's, like, just enough Kathy stuff in most of the house. Not so much that it's like, we get it, but not little enough that it seems like she's distancing herself from her most famous work. What there's most of is other people's art and photos of her family, her parents as young people, as old people, her sisters, her daughter. Some of her daughter's bedroom is in the middle of getting moved out because her daughter's getting married this fall and it seems to be kind of the ceremonial thing that you do when you're getting married. A lot of the art she has hung are original works from her peers that were gifted or doodled for her through the years. There's original For Better or For Worses by Lynn Johnston. There's original Charles Schultz Snoopies. There's a drawing of the Ziggy character looking at Kathy sadly, and she's saying, It would never work, Ziggy. We're from different comics. 
In her office, there are folios with every Kathy comic organized in chronological order from 1976 to 2010. Her awards are in there too, her Emmy, her Rubin, which is the highest award in comic strips. She shows us her studio where she drew new Kathy comics during the pandemic lockdown and drew some of the most popular Kathy comics ever in the 90s and the 2000s. There's a window that looks right down to her yard. There's a large white lettered sign that says ACK, but it's the same color white as the wall, not too flashy. She's framed this hand-drawn map near her art supplies. It's a map that's covered in these little tinfoil stars marking different places. I ask her what the stars are marking and she says that these are the places where her comic strip ran on its very first day in 1976 when she was 26 years old. The map had been carefully drawn and made by her parents and given to her while she was still working her advertising job in Michigan, not sure that this comic thing would become a full-time gig. There's not a ton of stars on the map, but the comic would go on to run in thousands of papers. And I think about that and how impressive that is. And then I think about how great it would be to get a map like that from someone who had infinite faith in you. We go back downstairs and I kind of resist the urge to ask if I can look at the comics that are framed in her bathroom, which I regret. I've convinced myself that that's like where the good stuff is. And she asks me if I want to see the shrine room. And yeah, I want to see the shrine room. So we go to the shrine room. It's a small, extremely organized, but also absurdly cluttered room full of the good stuff. And by that, I mean more Kathy merchandise than I could ever possibly conceive of. She lets me take pictures of this room. There's this gigantic, and I mean gigantic, stuffed Kathy doll from a 1982 Neiman Marcus display. There's every published collection of Kathy comics. There's all the merchandise that I remember from the past. The Kathy t-shirts, aprons, mugs, tote bags, beach towels, Christmas tree ornaments, pins, a framed photograph of Kathy in front of the Kathy ice cream stand at the Universal Isles of Adventure in Orlando, picture frames, rag dolls, greeting cards, every novelty item you could imagine, covered in acts, in gym clothes, in Kathy and Irving, Kathy with her face in a dinner plate, Charlene talking about how secretaries aren't paid enough, the Kathy character smiling knowingly as a phrase goes up and down the sleeves or the straps. The shrine room is a shrine to this part of her life. It's both a shrine to Kathy's work and to the merchandising business she worked so hard to build. If you weren't around for Kathy Mania, people loved this shit. And women in particular bought it for their friends and siblings and themselves. I love the shrine room. Kathy very kindly offers to let me take a picture with her and the gigantic Kathy doll. And Kathy brings us over to her living room table for the reason that I've technically come to see her. And that's to get a copy of her Emmy's acceptance speech, which wasn't available online anywhere. But we keep talking after she gives me the DVD, which I will later learn has individual chapters on it with all of her public appearances, the talk shows, a gigantic Kathy balloon at a national parade, footage of Kathy speaking with Girl Scouts. Not wanting me to think that she's an egomaniac, she tells me that her dad had this DVD put together in the 2000s. She says he wasn't very good with technologies and guesses that he brought a stack of home videos to a video store in Florida. Her mom continues to live in Florida now, a healthy, fit 99 years old. 
Kathy also asks me about myself, how my boyfriend and I met. She tells me about the work of mine that she's seen and tells me what she was doing when she was my age, which was making the Kathy comic and not feeling great about herself. I'm my age right now and I'm making podcasts and I don't feel great about myself. She asks me a couple times with genuine curiousness why I'm making this show and I don't really have an articulate answer for her in the moment. I didn't really think that I would, but I'm still annoyed with myself that I can't do it. I tell her I know that her work is important to me and that it makes me laugh and it helps me see the world that it existed in very clearly. That I liked seeing a character who tried really hard and often failed, but was still deemed to be important enough to be in the newspaper every day. I tell her that my mom and a lot of people like my mom enjoyed it and so I want to understand it. Kathy levels with me and says that she thought I was going to make a show making fun of her work or punching down at it because that had been her experience with, for lack of a better phrase, people like me. And I've got a little bias here because I really like Kathy. She loves her family, her home, her dog, and planning a wedding for her kid. To me, her career is thoughtful and made to commiserate with people who felt the same way that she did. And it worked really well. I mean, so well that I'm sitting in a house with a shrine room because of it. But as we're talking, she does acknowledge these lingering insecurities she has. She tells me that feminists don't like her work and seems a little disappointed. She thinks the reason this is is that the Kathy character is too sad, too pathetic. And I tell her that I don't think that that's true at all anymore, and that getting to witness a character who you see a little bit of yourself in fail feels a little good and a little bad, and that people have no less need for commiseration than they did then. I bring up Rachel Symes' piece, I bring up Juliette Kahn's piece, younger feminists who also see what Kathy was trying to do. Kathy thanks me, but I don't know if she buys it, which is too bad because I really meant it, and I still do. After a couple of hours, we leave because Kathy's daughter and fiance are coming by to learn how to dance at their own wedding this afternoon. Isaac and I go and get fries at In-N-Out and talk about her yard and the map with all the stars on it and the shrine room and everything we had a conversation about. This was one of my first times visiting someone fully vaccinated and I will never forget that afternoon. It was the best and it made me feel completely confident that spending the next couple months making this show was the right thing to do. So. I go home and watch the Emmy speech on my boyfriend's PS4. I played some of this speech for you in our second episode, but I didn't play the full thing. And there's a funny story that Kathy told us about it at her dining room table. This was the Emmys that took place in 1988, and Kathy brought a date who she later decided she didn't like because he was an asshole. My words, not hers. And they ended up trading their seats at the Emmys with some friends. So when Kathy's name was called as the winner of the Emmy for Outstanding Animated Program, it cuts to a shot of random people, her friends, not her. But eventually the camera finds her and she's wearing this beautiful black dress and she's standing beside her male colleagues. And Kathy blushes at the idea of doing this when she talks to me. But as she's on stage in 1988, she doesn't let the men next to her speak for the entire time that they're there. I'm assuming they would thank their family and co-workers and maybe God if that's their thing. But we'll never know because on this day, Kathy Geiswhite took up every second and every inch there was to celebrate this accomplishment and to thank the people who she felt were responsible for it. 
So here's that speech in full. When I started the comic strip, Kathy, I was sure that I was the only woman in the world who came home from a day in my brilliant career and stood in the kitchen squirting ready whipped whip topping directly into my mouth. <laughs> I was sure that I was the only professional, enlightened professional business person who balanced my checkbook by switching banks and starting all over every six months. <laughs> Or, or who coped with relationship problems by eating a cheesecake. <laughs> I'm first grateful to my parents, not only for encouraging me to believe that I was not the only one, but for forcing me to send the humiliating moments of my own life to Universal Press Syndicate for publication. <laughs> I'm grateful to Universal Press Syndicate, especially John McMeal, Jim and Kathy Andrews, Lee Salem, and Tom Drape for their great support. I'd like to thank Fred Rappaport and Kim LeMasters of CBS for taking uh, one of the first chances on primetime animation for adults. I'd like to say a special thanks to my sisters Marianne and Mickey, who are not only my best editors, but the whole foundation of my sense of humor. On behalf of the great animators we worked with, the producers, the voices, and all the supporters of Kathy who are sitting at home tonight destroying their diets while they watch the Emmys, Thank you all for this wonderful vote of confidence. We will really treasure it. Thank you. Kathy thanks everyone here who elevated her work to what it was. Her parents, who made maps with little stars on them. Her sisters, the people who had taken a chance on her. And most importantly, her audience. Mostly women who were struggling with themselves in the same way that her character was. She made work for women who experienced insecurities, who tried and who failed. Not to propose a radical solution, but to reassure them that they weren't alone. The way that a lot of really good art assures people that they're not alone, whether in their fears or their pettiness or their insecurity or their triumphs. Each year in the Kathy comic, the character would make a New Year's resolution to lose weight to eat better, to find someone, to stop smoking, to be better, and every year she basically stayed herself. There were some people in her life that thought that was enough, your moms, your dads. There were some people who wanted her to be the person she was told to be because that was also who they were trying to be, your Andreas, your Charlenes. And then there were people for whom she would never be enough. The Kathy character's failures turned her into a legend, and she stayed one for fans who saw their own struggles in hers. And it's in this character's intense effort and repeated failure that I think Kathy strips really transcend and become something special, because to some extent, she is one of the ultimate hashtag relatable characters, which is a convention that often makes critics who cannot hashtag relate cringe. But Kathy's failures are invaluable. Knowing the ways that she struggled and failed, the issues that she harps on, and the ones that she seems completely unaware of, and what her definition of success was, say more than a simple victory in four panels ever could have. I'm rooting for her. Hey! Oh my gosh, my Kathy sleep paralysis demon. Where have you been? I've been recording for like an hour. I was just looking through some old stuff. You've never brought me Kathy comics before, what are these? Ooh, let's read this one. 
This is four panels of Kathy talking straight to the reader. I reject you. I reject all of you. In the second panel, she sits in front of a desk sign that says attitude. In the next one, she peers above the panel, feral, angry. She shouts, My ego will never again be squashed by one of you miserable tourniquets, and nothing anyone can say will change it. In the final panel, she's celebrating. I am loved. You don't matter to me anymore. I really liked that one. Oh, one more, one more. Kathy, the show is over. I already told my closing personal anecdote. That's how this shit works. Just one more. Okay, but it's kind of the rule to end your show right after the little personal anecdote. One more. It's just two panels. Kathy's on the phone, holding a diet soda. I have unshakable dreams, unwavering routines, and an increasingly picky view of the world, which lets me feel sorry for myself as an unappreciated goddess while simultaneously rejecting all who come my way as unworthy. That one rules. I like that one. Is the show done? Yeah, Yeah, it is. I mean, I don't have another sleep paralysis demon waiting in the wings, if that's what you're asking. Me? I wasn't asking anything. I just... No, seriously, stick around. Haunt my dreams. Neither of us will ever know peace anyways, right? Ack! Yeah, ack. You have now been ack-pilled. It is a process that cannot be reversed. Unfortunately... No one can be told who Kathy truly is. You have to see her for yourself. I'm trying to free your mind, listener, but I can only show you the context. You're the one that has to interpret it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, ActCast is an iHeartRadio production. It is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. Thank you so much to the team who worked on this show. Sophie Lichterman is the producer. Isaac Taylor is the editor. Zoe Blade is the composer. And Brandon Dickert wrote the slapper of a theme song. I also want to shout out the amazing voice cast of this show. Jackie Michelle Johnson killed it as Kathy. Melissa Lozada Oliva was my first choice for Andrea. Maggie Mayfish ruled as Charlene. And Miles Gray, as always, blew me away as Mr. Pinkley and Irving. We also heard performances from my best friend in the world, Julia Clare, as Kathy Geiswhite, and from my parents. Huge thanks to Kathy Geiswhite for being so supportive of this show as I was working on it. And thank you for listening to it. I'll be back later with a different show about something else. Bye. She burst into the world in 1976. She's at work, she's out on dates, and she don't like politics. From Mama and Irvin to her feminist friends. She's fighting all the stanzas with some chocolate in hand. Kathy, she's fighting back. Too stressed for success. Let's cut her some slack.
Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.